Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon today. Father, Lord, we just praise you. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, your favor, your kindness to us, for bringing us here, Lord, to worship you together in community. Father, I pray as we, as we worship, as we open your word, that, Spirit, you would be working on our hearts, drawing us closer to Jesus, producing in us the fruit of the Spirit, and, Lord, helping us to love you and love others more. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, our campaign is called The Table. We've been in this for a few weeks now. And what we've been talking about first is the original table, the Lord's Supper. When we refer to the table or say, like, come to the table, a lot of times in the Christian circles we're talking about coming to communion together and sharing in communion together. And so we've been talking about what the table means, what it represents, and how we take communion together as a church family in remembrance of Christ and what he's done for us. How we're identifying with Christ and what he has attained for us on the cross. And it's a celebration. We've been talking about how communion is a celebration. And last week, we even talked about how even at the table, there is this threat of betrayal, which just appeals to the reality of our experience in the church, where we have offenses, we have hurts, even at the hands of people in the church who love God, genuinely, but are sinful and they make mistakes. And so how do we navigate through those was kind of the questions we were asking last week. And how do we deal with church hurt? Because at the table, as Jesus is uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, Judas is at the table. Peter was at the table with him. And so in this metaphor of the table, we also find a symbol of community. We find uh, what unites us as a church, and we find this symbol of coming together around a meal. And that's a powerful symbol for us as the church and how we can unify and come together around Christ and even hospitality how we can show hospitality one to another, inviting one another in to one of the most sacred spaces in our home and in our life experience is the table where we gather together to share a meal. So, as I said, last week we talked about the betrayal theme. Uh, Judas had betrayed Jesus, and Jesus brings this up at the table while they're sharing this last meal together. And then Peter even denies Jesus three times, and Jesus tells him he's going to do this in a few hours, and he still does it. So we talked about how that must have hurt and how we can have hope in the midst of that and how we can find healing in the midst of church hurts. But now, after Jesus had said, somebody's going to betray me, the disciples start trying to figure out who it is who's going to betray him. And then somehow they kind of get onto this conversation. They start a dispute about which one of them is considered the greatest. <laughs> So I don't know how they got there. <laughs> how do you get from A to B? Someone's going to betray me to like, well, I'm the best, so it can't be me, right? Um, <laughs> but they did. And Jesus takes this as a teaching opportunity, which really speaks to the teaching style of Jesus. Like he's, man, I'm not great at thinking on my feet. If I don't have time to prep, not my strength, right? Jesus is so stinking good at it. It's unreal. He takes this moment and has this powerful demonstration of what, Greatness and leadership really looks like in the kingdom of God. So much so that the apostles later, as they're writing this down, they remember it and they take note of it. So the dispute rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Okay, so what we have to see here first is that the disciples, the apostles, those who grew up in this culture of the first century, they already had a concept of leadership and greatness. Okay, so what Jesus is doing here is he's not just forming them on a blank slate of what it looks like to be great in the kingdom of God. They already have all these preconceived notions about what greatness 
looks like. And so what Jesus has to do is counterformation. He has to change their perceptions of leadership and greatness to kingdom greatness. They already have these ideas of what leadership and greatness looks like in the culture, as do we. We already have ideas of what greatness looks like. If I were to just pause right now and ask you, what does greatness look like for you? Or what does success or good leadership look like? We all have ideas that come to our mind. We all have people that probably come to our mind. There's certain traits. Perhaps you can list the 21 laws of leadership, um, uh, which is fine. It's a good book, right? Um, perhaps you're thinking like Elon Musk or... Oh, does anybody think the meta guy anymore? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if anybody does. Perhaps you're thinking Steve Jobs, right? Or Michael Jordan, or if you're in the sports. Aaron Rodgers? Sore? Sore point still? Uh, it's a tough topic in Wisconsin these days. And if you don't know, I'm a Bears fan, so I'm going to poke, okay? <laughs> I'm really hoping he leaves. Um, <laughs> Okay, so we all have this concept of what greatness, success, leadership, achieving, making it. We all have ideas of what that looks like. Jesus' disciples did too. And here he talks about the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. So he's referring to their concept of leadership and greatness in political leadership or governance. In this day, they were ruled by the Roman Empire. So we'll get to that in a second. But we, we have ideas about Government, government leadership and what constitutes greatness today, too. And it's very different from the ancient world. So we just have to recognize these. When Jesus is talking about this, his picture of governance is very different than our picture of governance here today. Because today, our government system is built on the system of checks and balances, right? Rule by the many, democracy, democratic principles, uh, diplomacy. And even today, we have like a pretty strong, especially among younger generations, a pretty strong distrust of institutions, which are like the centers of leadership. That is not the way it was in the ancient world. In the ancient world, there is uh, stability around institutions, like the government, like the family, like religious systems. The, the, those were deeply ingrained in people's communities, and even in their community. Those were deeply ingrained in them as necessary, and they respected mostly based off of the teachings of Aristotle and Greek philosophy. It's not really the way it is today. So we got to kind of get ourselves into the place of a first century uh, person, Jesus' disciples, when he says this and talks about the kings of the Gentiles and how they lorded over them. So remember, at this day and age, Judea was ruled by the Roman government, and that's likely who he has in mind here. So he's likely talking about Caesar. Right? The Roman government, they... In the minds of the people of Judea, the disciples, so this is likely this really complex relationship of the Romans ruled with a heavy hand. They were very authoritarian, right? Like if you stepped on a line, they were stepping in and they were going to put down any rebellion quickly before it had a chance to spread. So they're very heavy handed. They were subjugated to the Romans. They weren't free as a people to form their own laws and rules. They were to some degree, but not totally. And so they have this difficult tension in this relationship with the king, Caesar, and Pilate, and Herod, who ruled over them at this time. They're making that exchange for their, essentially, freedom for peace and security. Okay? And what they would often do was call themselves benefactors. 
So the kings, the rulers in Judea, even though they were subjugating the people there, they weren't totally free, they had, would promote themselves as benefactors, as those who would provide generously for them. And so they probably had deceived themselves even into thinking like us stepping in, keeping the peace, is actually good for them. Us ruling with this heavy hand is probably good for the world at large. As Roman authority spreads, we're spreading peace, right? One story, just to, just to illustrate this. I got, I got kind of on a rabbit trail this week. And I was reading a... Uh, <laughs> Flavius Josephus, who's a, a historian in the late first, early second century, um, he documents this account of Vespasian. So he's a, he becomes the Roman emperor after Nero. And actually, after Nero dies, uh, there's like four emperors vying for power. And Vespasian wins because he has the allegiance of the army. Right? So most of my, <laughs> as I was reading this, I'm like, most of my history that I know about Rome comes from Gladiator, more than my high school history classrooms, which is not good, but I think, I think this is true, right? So <laughs> when there's a, when there's a fight for power of who's going to be the next emperor, whoever has the strongest army, they tend to win, right? So this is before he becomes emperor. Uh, Vespasian, he was sent by Nero to Judea to stop an insurrection in 67 AD. He does, and he comes to one city, and this guy, so he, he sends an emissary out to this city to go check and see if the city is favorable to Rome or not. So when the emissary arrives, this guy who's named Jesus as well, son of Shaphat, don't know who that is, but anyways, he, he comes out with a band of robbers to attack them. And this Roman emissary, he's like, ah, I don't have orders to fight, so I'm not going to fight. So he flees, and they all run. And they leave their horses, they steal their horses, and all this stuff. So the leader runs away, and then he goes back to Vespasian, and Vespasian sends a larger force into this city. And when they come up to the city, the elders of the city, they come out and they say, hey, 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 <laughs> this was just a small band of robbers. Like, we're not with them, we're with you. The robbers have since left, you guys can come into the city. So they do, and the whole army comes into the city. And as they come into the city, they realize, man, it's taking a long time for us to bring our army into the city. So what we're gonna do is expand the gate. And we're gonna do a little remodel project. And we're not gonna tear down the walls. So what we're doing is actually good for you. The fact that we're here is good. And so you see they call themselves benefactors. In fact, Josephus documents that the people call Vespasian and the Romans their saviors and their benefactors. But in doing so, there's this very complex relationship of subjugation for peace and freedom. Okay? Or not freedom. Peace and, uh, yeah, <clears throat> protection. So that's the concept that Jesus has in mind here. And he goes this next line, but you are not to be like that. <laughs> okay, back to the counterformation idea. So you have this concept of leadership and greatness in your mind built into you from the culture that you've grown up in and lived in forever. That's not the way you're supposed to be great and lead, Jesus says. What Jesus is essentially saying is, I'm going to counterform you into something else, something different. So your concept of greatness is going to change. It's going to be different. Instead, he says, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. The youngest in this culture wasn't like the stereotypical baby of the family who had everything, right? <laughs> it's all of the privileges that we have today. It's, it, they had the least authority in the family. They were the youngest. They had the least authority. 
and the one who rules like the one who serves. So, again, like, paradoxically, <laughs> the one who rules should be like the one who serves. He's two different metaphors there, ruling and in the family. He goes on, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? So here's our table metaphor again. But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus even gave them a simple illustration of this a few verses earlier, where, remember, they're arguing here about who's the greatest among them. Top of that list would have been Peter, James, and John, because they were Jesus' three closest friends and disciples. A few verses earlier, Jesus sends Peter and John to go prepare the Passover. So he's sending them to go serve. Go prepare the Passover meal for me and the disciples. And they did, and they were the greatest among them. He's going to give them another example or another illustration of it at John's gospel documents more so. In John chapter 13, at this meal, John documents Jesus doing this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Note that. So if you're highlighting a person in your Bible, highlight that. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. He's going to wash his disciples' feet. And in verse 3, we see Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, so the reason that Jesus was able to get up and go serve and humble himself and serve the disciples was because he knew who he was. Because he knew that God had put all things under his power. So we would think of greatness and leadership and say, I have been given all of this power, all of this authority. Now, I don't have to do anything for the rest of my life. I don't have to work a day. I can retire early to a beach in Florida and just sit and sun myself and, as John Piper criticizes, collect seashells all day, right? And have somebody wait on me hand and foot. That is not the definition of greatness or leadership in Jesus' framework. Jesus knew that he had all power in heaven and on earth It was given to him by the Father, and he took that place of power and privilege and that status that he had, and he served. He knew what God had called him to do. He knew where he was going. He knew who he was, and so he didn't feel this need to have to prove himself. So he could then humble himself and serve and love. That is key. If you know who you are in God, that you are a child of God, that you are saved not by any work of your own, that you are accepted by the Father, that you are justified in Christ through faith in him, and you can be a child of God. You don't have this need to prove yourself. It allows you the freedom and the space to then humble yourself and serve. Also take note that the Father gave it to him. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. If we fast forward to verse 12 here, we see Jesus explaining why he did this. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Okay, so again, Jesus here isn't totally deconstructing all leadership concepts. He's he's still the teacher. He's still the Lord. He is of a status socially higher than them, right? And yet, what he's changing is the perception and the framework that this 
privileged status affords him. Instead of using his privileged status to be served, he's going to use his privileged status to serve. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. So what he's saying is humble yourself and serve each other. Take the, take the perception, the posture of a servant, and serve one another with whatever privilege, whatever you have. He's calling his disciples to humble service. And he specifically says, like, he's doing this as an example, so do this. <laughs> there are some things Jesus does where you're like, ah, I don't think I can turn water into wine. <laughs> right? I can't do that kind of stuff. This, he specifically says, do this. Christians, you are all called to this mentality. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Okay, back to Luke chapter 22. <clears throat> Jesus then says to his disciples, after calling them to this humble service, to humble themselves and serve one another. He tells them this in verse 28, which we tend to miss on this conversation, but I think it's absolutely vital. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. So what he's saying is, you guys have suffered with me a lot. Through his life, through his ministry, you've suffered with me through the pains and the difficulties of rejection by the Jewish leaders. And they're about to watch him die. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table. There's the table metaphor again in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is telling his disciples is that you humble yourselves now and serve one another now, but glorification awaits you. Humiliation comes before glorification. In 1 Peter 5, 6, he tells us, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. In that text, Peter is writing to leaders of the church who had been dispersed throughout Asia Minor and were facing persecution at the hands of the governments and the local, local communities in their areas. And he doesn't tell them, hey guys, like fight back. There's no hint of that. There's no, don't stand for this. Get your people in places of power. Don't do this. <laughs> you don't have to put up with this. No. His whole message to them is keep humbling yourself. Serve the Lord. And you don't have to lift yourself up. Wait for God to lift you up in due time. So Peter had no qualms about holding out the glory that awaited those who were in Christ in the new creation. Jesus had no qualms about that. So, oftentimes we feel kind of selfish thinking about that. I don't think we need to. When we look ahead to heaven, we look ahead to the new creation, that should be something that motivates us and drives us in the proper context and moves us to say, I can humble myself now. I don't have to have it all now. I don't have to attain positions of power and privilege now. I don't have to prove myself now. I can humble myself and serve one another because this glory awaits me that God will provide. Band, why don't you guys come and get set up? But to attain that glory, they remained faithful to Jesus in his trials. They suffered with him. So our big idea today 
is quite simply greatness in the way of Jesus is service to one another. So, as I said before, we all have this framework of what constitutes greatness, what constitutes good leadership, success, making it. We all have this culturally formed framework. We need to be counterformed. So remember, you're not starting as a blank slate. You need to be counterformed to the way of Jesus. Because this is greatness in Christ's kingdom. It's not like the culture, it's not like the world rules and reigns and exercises authority and leadership. It's like Jesus. There's lots of good principles that we can take from leadership books and other sources. But ultimately, it has to come back to Jesus. And Jesus served. Jesus humbled himself and gave his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Lord, God, we praise you. Thank you, Jesus, that you humbled yourself and you gave us this model of what it looks like to be great. And it's not as the world talks about greatness, but, Lord, it's through humble service to one another. And so, Lord, our trust in you is so deep that we know we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to elevate ourselves. Lord, we can trust in you that you will do that at the proper time. And so, Lord, we're going to continue to humble ourselves and continue to serve one another and love and serve you, Lord, and follow your way, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. If you guys need prayer while we're singing, Mindy's in the back and she'd love to pray with you. Lord Jesus, we exalt you as Lord, Lord of all creation. We declare you Lord of our lives. So Lord, we want to follow your way, your teaching, and what it looks like to be great in your kingdom. Would your spirit inspire us and move in us, Lord, to humbly serve one another, to follow your example, to follow the model that you have laid out for us. Lord, not to follow the model of the world, but Jesus, to set our eyes on you and to follow you first and foremost. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. All right, our big idea is simply greatness in the way of Jesus is service to one another. Remember, just as Jesus, when he was talking with the disciples at the Last Supper, he uses the example of leadership in the Gentile, among the Gentiles. And kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over those they rule. And they, they declare themselves as benefactors. So just as the disciples, they had this formed view of what greatness and leadership looked like and how it should be enacted, so we do. And so for us, as we approach a text like this, we have to begin by reflecting on what form of greatness, what form of leadership, perceptions do I have that are conflicting with the way of Jesus? Because again, to, to trust, follow, begin living in more of the way of Jesus, we have to undo a lot of the formation that has already taken place in us. Most of that formation happens so subtly and we're so embedded in a culture of these ideas that we may not even be aware of it. But the more we adhere to the way of Jesus and seek out the truth of Scripture, the more these will come to our attention. And so I mentioned earlier, one of, these, one of the aspects of this that I mentioned earlier is 
our distrust in leaders and institutions that we have to talk about. Um, Specifically, millennials and younger have a pretty high distrust in the leadership of institutions. And so, when we take that, and leaders in general, because in our information age, we've been let down often, we know the failures, we know the faults of many leaders. There's lots of other reasons, but it doesn't matter. Anyways, <laughs> the, pro- the problem is when we take that distrust of leaders and institutions and then we begin applying it to Jesus and to the church. And in some capacity, the church is in at fault for this because many church leaders have fallen and failed and also let us down. But don't apply that to Jesus. As much as I can encourage you, that if you are in, in that sphere, distrusting institutions, distrusting of leaders, don't apply that to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has earned your trust more than anyone else. Jesus has given his life, what we're celebrating in communion at the table here, he has given his life for you. Jesus had humbled himself, came from glory, God, the second person of the Trinity, took on human form and didn't come as a conquering king, didn't come as one to be served by everybody else, even though he had that right. That was his right. That was his status. And it would have been right to do that. But he came and he humbled himself. We serve a Savior who died for us. The cross represents Jesus' humility and his love and his compassion for us and his willingness to serve. In his life, Jesus touched lepers. Jesus hung out and had dinner at the table with tax collectors and sinners. He humbled himself to such a great degree. And so he has earned our trust that we can surrender to him as Lord. And we should not fear to do so because Jesus is truly good. He is the one person that we can say is truly good and worthy of our full surrender and giving everything to him. So we ought not fear to surrender our life to him. Another example of the counterformation that needs to happen <laughs> is... We're going to think about this in different spheres. Okay, so I want to encourage you guys to think about this in all these different spheres, not just within the church, but like as Christians operating in the culture and in the world around us. So think about it in your home. What does leadership look like in your home? What does great leadership look like in the home? Think about it at business, in the workplace. What does great leadership and effectiveness or greatness look like in business? Think about it in the sphere of politics. What does greatness for Christians look like in the sphere of politics. And that's one that I think really needs to be counterformed within the church today. Because Christians, they've enjoyed places of power and privilege in our nation since its founding. But that's changing. The culture is shifting to a majority non-Christian culture. And in the midst of that shift and transition and change, a lot of Christians have abandoned this way of Jesus in leadership in order to maintain positions of power and influence. 
But humble service will never not be the way of Jesus in leadership. There is no sense in which Christians can abandon the way of Jesus to fight fire with fire, for example. Or, (laughs) as Donald Trump Jr. put it, I'm not apologizing for using this quote because he started it, right? He went there, okay? He said, we've turned the other cheek, quoting Jesus and his teaching, right? But it's gotten us nothing. It's gotten us nothing, he said, while we've ceded ground in every major institution in our country. His emphasis and his point is, we've tried the way of Jesus and it didn't work. And so the counterformation for us as Christians is to change our definition of greatness and good leadership to just what is effective and what works. Do you see the hidden idea there in what he's saying? Is your concept of greatness and leadership is success, winning, in the political sphere, in the business sphere, etc. That is not the framework of greatness for followers of Jesus. That does not excuse us abandoning the servant leadership of Jesus And it doesn't matter how dark our culture gets. It doesn't matter how far away from the way of Jesus our culture gets. It will never justify Christians abandoning this as our model of how we are to lead and interact with one another and with the world around us. Instead of saying, fight fire with fire, the Apostle Paul, when writing to the Roman church, who is facing the threat of persecution, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. (laughs) Basically says, don't fight fire with fire, right? He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So the more we encounter evil, the more our culture regresses or moves away from Christian values, however you want to say it, our call is to love people more. (laughs) Serve one another more. That is the model of leadership and greatness in Christ's kingdom. And so we have to unpack and rework our definition of greatness. It's not winning. It's not effectiveness. It is doing the right thing. It is following the way of Jesus and leaving it in the hands of God. We are never justified in going beyond this model of humble service. And so, in order for us to do this, there are two important things that we have to keep in mind. One, when you know who you are in Christ, you're free to humble yourself and serve others. Remember in John 13, Jesus knew who he was, that he was given authority over all creation by God, the Father. And he knew where he was going. He knew what God's will was. He knew he was returning to the Father. And so he took that privileged status. And what he did with it was humble himself and serve. He didn't take his privileged status to be served. Jesus is our model. And at the heart of that, it has to be this idea of identity, of knowing who you are in Christ, that you don't feel this need to prove yourself. So many abuses of of leadership and authority come when leaders feel as if they have to prove themselves worthy of the title that they have. 
Jesus knew he was given all authority, and so he humbled himself and washed his disciples' feet, which was the job of a servant. Not the teacher, not the master. And so when we know who we are, we're free to humble ourselves and serve one another and not feel as if we have to prove why we're worthy of this status. No, it was a gift of grace that God has given you. You are a child of God. You are loved by God. If you are in Christ, he has justified you. He has made you holy so you can be in his presence with him. And we can rest in that and not feel this need to constantly prove ourselves worthy of the status that we have. The next humiliation comes before glorification. Jesus, before he rose from the dead, died on the cross. He lived a life of humble service. As I said, he touched lepers. He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. He was the only one who had the right to come to earth as the king and receive worship and praise and it be right. And yet, he comes to earth, born as a baby, lives a relatively impoverished life, and serves some of the most ostracized in our society. He's our model. And again, in this counterformation idea, we have to be aware of the cultural influences that are acting on us and the things that we have just come to assume and believe. And part of this, that we have come to believe in the church, and this isn't... This is, in part, how it's presented, too. <laughs> it's, not all, it's not all on Christians. It's partly how it's presented. We come to believe this me-centric gospel, we're call, I'm calling it. This is more of an American consumeristic idea than it is a biblical idea. Because we're bombarded with ads all of the time saying, hey, you can have it all. Like, why not? Why not have it all? And the idea is that we can have glorification without the humiliation. We take that and we apply it to our faith and say, hey, I can, get, I can just say this prayer. I can believe in Jesus. And now I can have my get out of hell free card. And I've got glorification awaiting me in heaven forever. Now I can just live how I want. That leads us to what Crawford Luritz calls a la carte Christianity. <laughs> I love it. It's such a good title. It's the title of our next campaign, so I'm not going to go into it a bunch. But we pick and choose aspects of scripture that I'm like, I'll follow this one. This is good for me and my family. Mm. That one about dying to myself and serving others, that's pretty hard. <laughs> I don't know if I want to do that one. And so we leave it. We pick and choose aspects of the Christian faith that we like and the ones that we don't, and we follow the ones that we like. It's not the way of Jesus. So we try to have this glorification without the humiliation of following Jesus. We want to experience the resurrection life without the death to self. We want the empty tomb without the cross. We want the benefits of the kingdom without submitting our life to the king. It doesn't work that way. More often what we do, even than a la carte Christianity, is just play the ignorance is bliss game, I think. We're like, I'll read the Bible. I'll read, read my like quaint little verse. 
like here and there for my morning devotionals, but that's all I really need. That's going to tell me the things that I want to hear because they want to sell that devotional, right? Instead of really digging into the scripture, really reading Luke 14 and the cost of discipleship and seeing, oh, Jesus actually requires a lot of me. Like he requires me to surrender everything to him in service to him. And so we just kind of ignore and just don't really want to know what Jesus actually said. And so, in following the way of Jesus, as I said, we are free to humble ourselves. As 1 Peter tells us, and wait for God to lift us up. So we don't have to fear the humiliation that comes now. Maybe we don't win right now. That's okay. We know that glorification awaits us. And that is the hope of the Christian life. Not that we will be elevated to this privileged high status here and now, but in eternity, in the new creation, when Jesus returns and makes all things new, we will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. And he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Just as Jesus promised them, you guys will reign in the new creation. Just as Peter holds out the hope of eternity and glory to the Christians who are suffering. So we can hope in that. We can long for that. And when we know who we are, and then when we know that glorification awaits us, we are free to humble ourselves now. Because what awaits us is so great, is so much better than anything that we can experience here. All of our hopes, all of our longings, all the things that we look at and declare are beautiful, and the things that we desire, they're just tastes of the glory that awaits us in the new creation with Jesus. And so don't trade glorification now for then. That's where our hope is. And when we have that perspective, we're free to just humbly serve one another. We don't have to prove ourselves and we don't have to achieve it all. Because we can wait for God to glorify us. This isn't self-attained. This isn't self-achieved. This is God's blessing that he gives us. And so we're free to obey him, to follow his word and his will and his way and practice the way of Jesus. That is humble service one to another. We're going to take communion together now. And that communion, we're remembering again that Jesus, God in flesh, the second person of the Trinity, he humbled himself and came to earth. And he didn't just humble himself and come and live a relatively poor life and serve the impoverished and the needy. That's enough, right? But he humbled himself and died for us. He was humiliated. He hung on a cross where everybody could walk by and see him hanging there. The Savior of the world, creator of all things, through him everything was made. He is Lord. He knew who he was. And so he humbled himself and served and even died for us. Remembering what Jesus has done to cleanse us, to remove our sin, to justify us so that we could be in the presence of God and experience the glory of God with him for eternity. So remembering that. And as you hold these elements in your hand, reflect on that. Reflect on the humiliation of Jesus. And then go to the glorification of Jesus. And remember, what we're doing is we're celebrating our, identi- our identifying with Christ in these elements, that we will experience those with him.
Before glorification, we may experience humiliation, and that's okay. The elements are up here, front rows. You guys come into the middle first, and when the row in front of you finishes, follow them up and hold on to the, the two cups. There are two cups. Hold on to them, and we'll pray and partake of them together. Would you guys pray with me for the bread? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your humility, for your example, that, Lord, you were incarnated. You became man. You experienced suffering, pain, and even death on our behalf. Lord, you showed us what humility looks like. You showed us what greatness looks like in your kingdom. Not just that, Lord, you died in our place, taking our sin upon yourself so that we might be glorified with you forever. So Lord, as we hold this in our hands, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Let's partake together. Would you pray with me for the cup as well? Lord Jesus, Lord, we know that we were unable to attain righteousness and holiness without you. And so, Lord, in view of that, we humble ourselves. And our righteousness is not attained by us being better or being good. It's through you, Jesus. It's your sacrifice on the cross, your blood that was shed for us, that makes us holy before you. That we could stand in your presence and be with you, justified, Lord. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves and we thank you as we partake together. Let's partake of the cup. Let's stand and let's sing a little more in praise to our Savior.